Welcome to the Evolution CBS podcast, where we discuss all things mergers and acquisitions. If you're a company owner and you want to learn more about how to sell your business for a premium value, then this is the podcast for you. Today, we're going to talk to Simon Arkel, who's the head of corporate at one of the small handful of law firms we work with, trusted partners that we turn to to give us support on legal matters. Today's subject matter is going to lean towards the increasing trend we're seeing to work with financial investors, sometimes referred to as private equity firms, but not exclusively in terms of the partners we work with, but transactions where we're typically representing a client or a group of clients that have a growing entity where they're looking for reinvestment or to exit partially, and they're looking for an investor to work with them and help them on the next stage of that journey. Now, in my experience, that does introduce some interesting challenges associated with the needs of exiting shareholders, future shareholders, the incoming investor, maybe a management buyout team in terms of the team working for the future. And Simon has, I know, a wealth of expertise in that space. So we're going to talk to him this afternoon and get some input around how EMW law and how Simon deals with that when he's working with clients. So welcome, Simon. Thanks, Steve. Um, Thank good you. to see you. Give us a bit of an overview about yourself and about your experience in this space, please. Thanks, Steve. Well, um, I mean, as you, as you quite, uh, quite, quite kindly introduced me as head of corporate at EMW, um, we, I mean, I personally, I've been, I've been a corporate, corporate solicitor now for for almost 20 years, um, and so have, have seen a whole you know, wealth of, um, of, of different kinds of transactions. I think probably principally since 2008, 2009, actually, there's been a, a real kind of um, ramping up of mm. transactions done with you know, a, a financial buyer. I think it's become far more commonplace now that you know, ever since that point where the banks kind of really were starting to back away from, from your run-of-the-mill kind of leveraged buyout deal, yeah. and mm. actually a lot of focus was going on the uh, you know on, on fund buy backed buyers and um, <clears throat> as a result it's become pretty commonplace for us I think mm. you know um, as a practice we have more you know over the over the last decade I'd say pretty much been um, it's been slightly it's been more weighted to acting on the sell side on deals yeah. than we have um, restructuring and, and buy side work um, and, uh, and and as a result you know, I would say probably you know half the deals that we that we come across are are with a you know with a private equity buyer, um, and that's been pretty pretty commonplace. So and, and actually, if I think of it, eleven years evolution's been trading it on for twelve now actually virtually, um, and over that period of time and the time I've been associated with them, um, more than half of what we do now will feature something that I might refer to simplistically as a majority partial exit. So where where there's an element of the shareholding being sold and then some either reinvesting so the shareholders can stay for the next stage or a management team being backed by a fun financial investor to help them on that journey that sometimes throws out structures that that need some understanding in yeah, terms of absolutely. how it works so can you talk to that for me for a bit yeah completely i mean i, I think that's probably it now and you just go back to sort of what, what what why is that different to normal normal you know is a full exit the, mm. the selling shareholders are know are out of the business yeah. and it's a yeah. becomes a wholly and subsidiary of the of of, of the acquirer mm. um and the difference here is that that may not therefore be the case when when there's a financial buyer um you you, you are like it is because different to a trade buyer who yeah. 
probably knows the space, knows the sector, knows what they're doing, and they're going to acquire the business outright. They might want you to hang around for a short while mm. as some sort of consultancy or handover, but they really mm. know this is probably their, their business. They're mm. going to carry it on. The private equity buyer is not. They might have sector experience, but ultimately they are acquiring this as an investment. Mm. And, and more often than not, they need the expertise involved to stay yeah. involved, to yeah. run the business, which means suddenly you've got you know, you've got the, the, the people who have been running it for a while or the up-and-coming management team who have been in the background mm. need to stay around to carry on running it and helping take it to the next level with the private equity investor involved. So, And it's an interesting scenario because historically, again, when I started working in this space, however many years ago, received wisdom would have been private equity won't pay as much for a business. You know, you won't get as good a valuation from a financial investor as you would be from a trade buyer. My experience actually, I suggest, would contradict that. Yeah, I agree. Because financial investors are looking increasingly to the future they're acquiring the business because they they understand the future story that where it can go to what the vision for the next stage could look like they're prepared to pay or to value on the basis of that future value as it generates even if that value may not be received by the shareholders until later and we there's a colloquialism we use within evolution today's value today and tomorrow's value tomorrow so that's where you end up with shareholders reinvesting or looking forwards, needing to be secure and comfortable in their new relationship with their financial backer yeah. so that all interests are balanced in the transaction. So does that give you a conflict inside a law firm representing their differing interests? It does, and I think it kind of brings you on to two aspects, doesn't it? Firstly, that inevitable, because you are, because you are, because some of the sellers are, if, if not all of them, but some of them are going to be involved in, the buy, in what is the buyer going forward, mm. There's, there's clearly that they are going to be shareholders going forward. So there's a whole part of the transaction there that wouldn't have been anticipated yeah. um, on a on a trade sale to, uh, to, a, to all out to a, to a trade buyer. Um, perhaps we'll come on to that mm. in a moment. Mm. But but yes, there is a conflict because you know quite often the future is the younger management team, maybe yeah. the the second tier or, or or those that are younger and want to carry on and roll mm. the dice again. Whereas you've got potentially founder who is who may not be staying around mm. and exiting one hundred percent, or he's taking some kind of uh, you know loan note or something on the yeah. drip, which means he's but he's still out of the business, and and therefore that is is definitely has the potential for a conflict. Now, if it's quite light light conflict, um, you know, some of the advice we're giving to the to the people who are carrying on is different. And their interests are aligned differently yeah. to the person who's leaving. Mm. Um, you know, for those that are carrying on, their interests are actually can quite easily become aligned with mm. the buyer again on some of the points that we end up negotiating. You know, with a seller. Um, you know, let's just imagine. You know, a negotiation over you know warranties and mm. and and, mm. and warranty limits and and and, and on, under what. You know, on what basis you'd be able, a buyer would be able to pursue sellers for breach of warranty when some of the sellers are carrying on and being part of the buyer. They want to be negotiating hard on those points, just like the buyer is, because they've got an interest in the future future group. And that, you know, we often, I mean, where we can, we would try to manage that internally with mm. a different team at EMW with yeah. a confidentiality wall in place and actually try to manage that. Yeah. 
those different interests because they they can become quite different quite easily. But but the alignment of those interests, I think, is a key point that you touch on there because uh, on somebody exiting the business, so a, a trade sale, somebody's buying a business, the the founding shareholder is retiring, as you say, it could be all cash on completion. There might mm. be a bit of deferred consideration that's waiting for a period or an earn out linked to something in terms of where they go. With a forward-looking investor, one of the things we talk about a lot in our world is finding the right partner for that transaction because all financial investors are not the same. So we're looking for an investor that will that will share the culture, that will understand the heritage and the legacy that's been built into today's business, but critically, understand how the future story is going to be delivered and the value associated with that. So part of our job is to try to filter out where we can see the interests are not aligned and to look for those where the interests can be aligned and we could start to almost gently, you can sense chemistry between our clients and the investor on what the future story is going to be. So if they can share that thinking around that future, future value creation in terms of where they are, then the alignment starts to develop between them. And I'm not saying that necessarily makes your job any easier representing the views of the existing shareholders, the incoming investors and everything associated with it. But if we do our job effectively up front and focus hardest on the best alignment, the best, the right partner, the right investor for the business, then that shared alignment, I think, helps even when you get some difficult conversations around how the different parties' interests align or are prioritised or otherwise. Yeah, I think, think, you know, I think you've hit your role spot, spot on there, Steve, because it's trying to get that alignment right and work out where the, the differing interests are early doors and then look, making sure that they get looked after, I think is key. Um, quite often, um, you know, we've encountered situations where, you know, the sellers, they've got their lawyers and, and their advisors and sometimes there will be that tier of management. There's a group of people in, involved who aren't necessarily being looked after. Yeah. But they're still there. They've got an interest in the buyer going forward. Maybe it's a second tier of management who are having to sign the, the shareholders agreement in the in the buyer, in the private equity uh, backed buyer mm. who aren't really being remembered. They they need advice, mm. um, you know. And 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 often it's it's a bit of advice that the set the principal role of the selling shareholders lawyer isn't designed to look after because yeah. you know yeah. we're not we're not there to look after that that group of, of of managers who are who are taking shares in the buyer. And you know, let's be honest. And, and it's again not often it's easily forgotten for, for for sellers signing their heads of terms when they've got a private equity buyer on the side and it's a throwaway line you'll have some shares this group of people are going to have shares in the buyer it can easily be a throwaway line in the heads of terms but it's leading to a whole raft of you know of a, a, of, of work and a much bigger work stream that then is needed to be looked at on the deal. And that's, you know, the investment agreement, the articles yeah. of association, the, the new service agreements, the, you know, everything that goes, what we would you know, term the equity documents, um, that can often get forgotten about. And actually, it's a big chunk of work and get the wrong advisors in and, and don't notice early doors where those interests are and need looking after it can get in the way and slow a deal down because it can be almost an afterthought well and if, if, if you get it really badly wrong and the forward-looking management team either don't feel they understand sufficiently what they're signing up to metaphorically or actually mm. or their interests haven't been adequately understood so they can be protected 
you could result in either failure of the transaction or failure quite quickly afterwards when reality hits. And you know, and often this is you know I've seen it happen where it's almost a it, it feels a little bit like a lot you know a, a problem that rears its head very late on. Um, you know, come across situations where we've been very closely aligned with the founder who mm. is exiting, and we've made it clear early doors that the management team who are staying involved need advice, but they don't want you know for whatever reason they don't they are, you know they don't want to use us in that situation mm. and you think okay well you know you you keep telling them it's they they need to be advised they need and it's been very late on where they've suddenly been faced yeah. with mm. oh i've got to sign this i don't understand this you know and let's be honest a set of articles you know where you've got a a a sophisticated private equity investor involved yeah. mm. um are going to be hard just to read let alone understand mm. and let alone know what is market practice and what's normal. Um, and, uh, you know, that, that they can be quite complex documents. And therefore, I, I certainly promise you, it's not a 5K job no. to just, you know, mm. oh, just do a quick review of this and, and it'll be fine. You know, mm. I've, again, come across, you know, examples where it, it, when, when you start getting into, oh, okay, so you're going to be given a... a, a a, a C ordinary share. Where does what does that mean? Oh well, you're in the exit cascade of proceeds in the future, yeah, and yeah, you're at yeah. here. Oh well, that's not what the heads of terms said. I thought I was getting, you know, this person suddenly, you know, in a ranking queue. They're not, you know, they, um, you know, and uh, they're subject to lever provisions and all sorts of things that actually make them think. Well, hang on a minute. This is all really complex, and actually, I, I don't really. I, I, no. I now suddenly need someone who knows what they're talking about to tell me what it means. We've, we, we often find ourselves getting mandates to actually act on some quite big transactions yeah. um, where uh, we, ha we are purely just picking up that management advisory uh, part of the puzzle mm. um, because the management team are suddenly presented with a mammoth uh, set yeah. of, 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 of equity documents mm. um, and the lever provisions are complex with multiple different classes of shares, mm. Mm. multiple different scenarios where they might no longer be working in the business, and of course, bear the, bear, you know, just for the for the sake of the listeners, you know, we're talking about a lever, lever provisions. We talk, we throw away very, yeah, throw a term around very loosely, like everyone. This is this is where you are linking value yeah. on your shares yes. to your continued employment state yeah. state yeah. status in the business. So or not, yeah. or not, yeah, yeah, yeah. quite. Mm. So you know, um, your CEO going forward gets sacked. What does that mean? And does he have to yeah. get it, get to keep his shares? Well, you know, obviously, private equity investor says no. Shares have to come back into the yeah. into yeah. the into the uh, you know into the pot. Um, but what price are they worth at that point? And that and that all depends on the circumstances. Mm. So um, you know, yeah, it's it's when when you've got uh, you know they are always. I would say inherently complicated, and it's always the pinch point mm. on negotiations because you're you're exiting, exiting shareholder, yeah. not necessarily having much of a role in the business. Might turn around and say, "Look, I'm happy to provide handover mm. and consultancy and stay involved for a period of time, but I'm not taking a hit on my share valuation." I, I, I could also think much. of a, I could also think of a situation again with a, 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 a live client example in my mind. Again, it, it was it was very firmly an MBO, and again, it, it worked very well in the end. We got to a really successful outcome, both for the exiting shareholders, so the founders both exited from the business. And then a collective management team, really well-established management team, highly competent. To be fair to them, this transaction was taking place 
in and around the context of COVID in terms of what was going on with the pandemic and without getting into in, in, inappropriate conversations about who the client was, there was a, a, a degree of stress that had been amongst the team because this leadership team had been managing the implications of the pandemic for the business. Now, to be fair, they'd handled it incredibly well, both in terms of the way they responded to lockdown, dealt with their people, dealt with their customers, their suppliers, managed that business and controlled it during the lockdown period, and then planned for exit. Amazing job they did. And the transaction completed successfully at the end, quite rightly, because this team really were worth their weight in gold in terms of what they achieved. But, and it's an important but, as an MBO team, it was decided they would take a separate legal advice in terms of the implications of the shareholder agreements and articles for the future. Um, and the founding shareholders, it was decided, would not attend the negotiation meetings that were involved in the lawyers and the MBO team. And I remember specifically in London with a another law firm, it wasn't EMW Law, to be very clear, <laughs> I can remember the meeting breaking down totally and people walking out because the sensation or the sense, sorry, amongst the MBO team was that their interests had not been represented by any of the work done by the lawyers representing the founders in terms of what they'd done. Mm -hmm. And so there was this impasse, mm -hmm. which was frustrating because we'd worked hard to try and align interest, to try and get them square, but the other law firm had come in and we ended off heading in a different direction in terms of the view that had been taken. Now, I do know that EMW work quite closely with financial investors and you have a number that you've worked with over time in terms of what you've done. Would that always be an external firm that you you direct to there? But, but yeah, Separation. It, no, it can be. I, yeah. It can be managed and we, we often do mm. um, using a kind of confidentiality wall. We lock down. Okay. Yeah, we would get a different partner. Better expression, yeah. yeah. Get it, we'd, use a, we'd use a team in a different office um, to actually manage that relationship because it is a bespoke piece of advice but it's not a huge bit of advice and it no. doesn't necessarily require you know the, the idea that you bring a whole third party into it's, it's easier for me maybe representing mm. founders to have a conversation about you know what is where we're at what the background is and what the situation is context, yeah. yeah absolutely mm. with with a colleague who is then going to go off and separately advise uh, with the right process and procedure of in place it can be done that way and we yeah. do i mean it doesn't you you may uh, you know, you may we, we may offer that. It's not always taken up no, because no. there is a percept. Sometimes there is a friction between the outgoing sellers and mm. the ongoing management team um, that needs to be managed in the right place, in, in the right way. And and if they don't feel, uh, you know, or they feel that they want their own completely separate separate firm yeah. to advise them then so be it and it does happen I, th I think for me the the bit that was missing on that occasion and, and we must have been party to the way in which this was missed because we thought we'd covered the basis and set the context effectively but that was clearly the piece that was missing because the incoming lawyers and, and I don't have the right to criticise any of the advice they were giving to the MBO team I'm yeah. sure they were acting with everybody's best interests at heart but because they didn't understand the fullest context and were only getting one side one side of the story, for want of a better expression to use, we ended up with some conflict there. And an expression we use a lot within evolution is to put yourself in the other people's chair, try and understand it from their perspective, because then you might understand why I, the I question's think, being asked. I think that's right. And I think were I sitting in the hot seat advising the you know, exiting shareholders, I would always... You know, there is no point looking at the documentation or or engaging in the discussion with all the parties in the transaction if you're not if you haven't got a hand mm. 
you know, on the issues that that team are clearly going to have. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's no point in me looking at a set of Libra provisions knowing full well that I'm only looking at it in the context of my founder who's going to be hanging around for six months and leaving and, and you know, my, when I know full well that the management team are going to hate what's written what's written down and, and just thinking well that's the, that you know that's 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 not an issue because it's it is our client's issue in that situation yeah. because it's going to bog the deal down and it's going to get in the way um and you're right often they are a sort of second tier They're, they've been brought up into this by probably the founder team anyway um and it's you know and it, i think it's incumbent on everyone to try and um you know to try and play center ground and be, be you know and try and find a reasonable middle ground that people are going to and, yeah. and, and then hopefully that additional advice the management team take then it is just a sense check and it only needs to be a sense check rather than a full blown um you know negotiation where you've got a third party firm coming in to try and and, and you know wade into the side of the deal no agreed 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 so we we touched on earlier this this concept of of investors rolling forward whether that's the founding shareholders leaving equity in the business to participate in a later event or a management team participating in equity somehow being vested I specialize sometimes use so that they can participate in the future growth and profitability of the business in conjunction with a financial investor there are a number of mechanisms that could be used to try to provide that um, or investment return for those individuals and give them the ability to participate. Talk to us about that a bit in terms of what you see. I mean, it's if it that can sometimes be a sort of a split into the types, though it's not yeah. so much you know it's equity. It could also be a debt. It could be debt left in the business. Yeah. Couldn't you know? Often sellers will, um, you know, they will leave um, part of their uh, value mm. in with the buyer. Uh, for a period of time, using some, you know, using a loan note. Yeah. Um, yeah. And now, now in that situation, they're not benefiting the equity growth of the buyer go and the group going forward. They are merely going to be paid a a, a, a coupon uh, on on their yeah. loan note and mm. and earn, earn their return that way. So, you know, and that seems, you know, that's still very much used. And I guess it's akin to deferred consideration. Yeah, we it's see another that a lot. form yeah. of that. And mm. and again, I don't think now. I can't remember the last time I did a. Tra- in fact, I can remember the last time I did a transaction which was a hundred percent. Uh, cash out on completion and that was a, a US trade buyer uh, about nine months ago okay um, and you know I just remember us all thinking crikey how rare this is uh, because it just doesn't really happen anymore um, most transactions are done with either earn out deferred consideration or equity participation in the buyer yeah, yeah. Um, and you know the uh, the loan note route is another one the problem with that inevitably with a financial buyer is the loan note, you're, you're bringing in a whole load of more complexity in the sense yeah. that the loan note, you know, you as sellers often get drawn into the intercreditor uh, agreement, intercreditor deed with then the buyer's own debt funders. Correct. Something that never really gets mentioned up front and then suddenly an intercreditor gets presented and the sellers are saying, well, what's this? What do you mean I'm not going to get paid when I'm owed my loan notes? Well, suddenly you're in the realms of, the performance of the buyer going forward and you know you you'll get paid so long as the bank allow you to get paid yeah. um and that can bring bring a whole load of more com- more complexity that you know you don't expect to see um you know we talked about uh, equity participation clearly Stephen. that's 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 obviously uh, you know that's a whole subject in itself um we sometimes come across deals done where actually you know the equity participation is t- is by the sellers actually not selling 100% up yeah, front yeah. and actually leaving some of their own equity stake um, in the company they own 
uh, leaving that in place and there being some sort of option agreement yeah, in sure. place with the with the buyer to, to acquire their shares at a later date. And that can be quite attractive because from, from the shareholder's perspective, um, I've worked on transactions where those future put and call options, I sometimes refer to them, actually have a pre-agreed multiple at which the option could be yeah. exercised yeah. at a later point in time. So it gives them some degree of certainty over when they may be able to exercise that option. They won't know the multiple of what number it is. They might, because the EBITDA number or the profit number. It'll be. Yeah, yeah. So that could move in terms of where it goes. But in my experience, shareholders can like that, can see that as attractive because it gives them some flexibility either to exercise the option or leave potentially, depending on the structure of how it works. I'm working on one at the moment where we, we have a series of four small put-and-call options over a period of as many years. And the way the agreement has been proposed by the acquirer, it's a US acquirer acquiring with a UK entity fronting the transaction for them, is in year one of the put-and-call arrangement, if it if it's not exercised, it just rolls into year two, and then subsequently to year three, mm. and then if need be, to year four, mm. with the multiple at which the option is exercised pre-agreed for each period. So yeah. my client likes that because he can see options to exit his remaining shares over time, depending on performance and what life is doing, but actually has some flexibility over as far as four or five years in front within which he can exercise in terms of how it, how it could work. Yeah, and and I think it, it's an interesting problem the put and the put and call option. Mm. I think it it presents a, a unique set of challenges. You, you you could say, well, what what's the downside? The downside is by keeping hold of some of your shares, you suddenly need all the raft of a yes. shareholders agreement and a set and a set of new set of articles that goes alongside because the buyer and you suddenly are shareholders together. Yeah. Um. Whereas you could look at it and say, well, we don't need all of that if we just deal with it by way of deferred consideration. Because yes, you yeah. could still deliver the same financial end game, couldn't yeah, you, by yeah. simply agree the buyer uh, acquiring 100% up front, mm. but agreeing to buy or pay the, the, the deferred consideration at mm. that same valuation principle yeah. that you've just talked about. Yeah. Um, but I think sellers often like the idea of it in the sense that they are actually holding on to something meaningful for the yes, duration of it the, the because they've kept their shares. They've kept 40% or whatever it might be. And if it all goes wrong or there's a conflict in the agreement somewhere, they've still got them. And th- th- There is a conceptual point with it because I, I was on a call with this particular client quite recently, actually, in terms of conversation. And his precise words were, I can't imagine not being a shareholder in the entity I'm responsible for delivering this growth plan against. So mm. to him, it really mattered to feel he was a shareholder rather than necessarily the holder of a loan note. Because, again, I've worked with loan yep. note with clients where, you know, a loan note with a 8 9 or 10% coupon payable or, or that could be compounded over time mm-hmm. looks incredibly attractive in terms of where they are. But to this individual, actually owning the shares still for him were quite important. And the only point of negotiation that we got to, or we're in now actually because we're not yet there, um, at the back end of the conversation was one where, We've gone back to the acquirer because it's effectively structured over a five-year period and asked that if we haven't resolved and he hasn't exercised over that five-year period, can he roll for another five years? Because he, if he's still there, he'd like to be a shareholder still. So there's a, 
it's it's a psychological attachment in his mind, I think, that he wants to be vested, connected to the business in shareholding. And I think um, I can totally understand that. And I think what the put and call does is allow that concern or that um, you know that 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 way of thinking to be managed, where you are dealing with a large trade buyer, mm. where actually you're not going to have a financial stake in the group because it's a a big. Yeah big listed buyer or yeah. a big a large a huge US uh, acquirer or whatever mm, it might be mm. who only wants to you know typically just buy outright and go off into the mm. if you're going if, if your seller wants to stay you know wants to you know as you say keep hands on some of the share capital that's how mm. a trade buyer would be able to do it I think mm. whereas PE a financial buyer private equity they wouldn't like that they'll say no hang on a minute we'll own it outright but yeah. we'll give you a stake in our new group we yes, just agreed. created yeah. and yeah. that's a completely different dynamic mm. but I, you know, I've seen the put and call, got one at the moment, like you have, um, where large French-owned group mm. is acquiring, a tr- doing a trade acquisition, and it's exactly that. We're acquiring 60% up front with 40% under, under a put and call. And, and without stepping over the line, again, you've interpreted it perfectly. The acquirer on this occasion is a large international entity that's buying the business effectively, and so that's the mechanism they've worked to. Mm. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, it, but but again, it, you, by not acquiring 100% upfront, it just it makes things a bit more complicated, and it all brings it back to the conversation. You just need the mm. right advice then, because you are dealing with a more complex transaction. These additional bits, whilst they sometimes because sometimes might seem quite small, you know, it could be oh we're leaving 10% behind, mm. or we're getting given we're just taking 10% of the shares in the new co with a with you know if it's a financial buyer. So they seem quite small parts yeah. of the transaction. I'm getting all my, I'm getting ninety percent of my cash up front, and I'm leaving ten percent behind. But that ten percent suddenly adds to a whole raft <laughs> of of yeah. of more negotiation and more and more process to deal with. Mm-hmm. Although it seems like quite a small small part of the deal. It, it also flicks the conversation back to how that remaining value is realised, and this goes back to again to a subject matter we regularly debate both with our clients and with our partners. And, and that's when we're finding the right investor and they're developing the future plan because, you know, we'll typically present a business with some idea of what the f- future opportunity would look like. And we'll work with our team to try and stress test that to make sure it's reasonable. But when you sit with the investor, they will have a view about whether the level of growth that uh, that will deliver will be sufficient for them to value the business at a certain level. So there is a collaborative piece as you start to go into shortlisting and then finally to a preferred buyer into heads of terms and due diligence and the formal part of the process where typically the lawyers will get much more heavily involved. Mm where the business plan for the future that they're working on needs to be challenging enough to deliver the return all parties are looking for, both selling shareholders, future shareholders, and the investor, effectively. But it also needs to be deliverable, because the last thing in the world our, my clients want to have in that situation is to find themselves signing up to a plan they just haven't got a hope in whatever of achieving, so they're never going to see that value in terms of where they go. So that element of of matching of the partner, matching of the investor is important, sharing the future story of the business in terms of where it's going and making sure all of the parties agree over where that is going works. And I'm not saying that makes the lawyer's job any easier in that situation, but if you can have genuine alignment, going back to that point, around the interests of the parties and they're all working together 
to make it happen in terms of where they are. My experience is with some thoughtfulness, again, from opposite sides of the table in terms of why people are looking for X or Y or Z, means the heads are working to try and get it done, to find a solution, rather than necessarily focusing on the, focusing on the problem in terms of what's there. Mm. Mm. I agree. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, and, and you know, how many transactions do I, you know, come across where actually, you know, there is a perception of, you know, that, that, that bit to come. Mm. I might never get it. It's not. I'm just wait. This is a waste of time having this conversation about this. You know, this is this is just a bit of hope value. Um, but nevertheless, you're being. We've still got to try and get the client engaged in it because, you know, if if quite often the you know the approach of the buyer out of the box is going to be that the documents are going to be probably a bit buyer friendly. Yeah. And therefore, yeah. there's going to be wriggle room in trying to get out of it. You know, if the seller is disengaged in 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 the process and doesn't you know sees that as you know I might never get that anyway and and you know, then that that makes the, the it quite difficult to, to to sort of negotiate the negotiate the documents yeah we do frown from time to time and I, I'm not saying it's 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 particularly appropriate to just financial buyers just private equity firms but um, there are times when you sit in conversations or on zoom calls with buyers and um, and sellers and you're debating a particular point and the response you get back at first pass is that's just the way we do it we do yeah. a lot of these transactions and that's our standard way and that's my frown moment then so okay I understand that might be the case but can you think from my client's perspective in terms of how that might work? doesn't necessarily mean you'll move or get them to move on that particular in, point. In my experience, that, that, is a, that, that is more often than not a throwaway line to try and get the other side to back off. A positioning a, point. E correct. Yeah, yeah. I, I, <laughs> there, there is always a little bit of room for manoeuvre. You cannot tell me, and it's an, it would be an interesting academic exercise for your yes. researchers to do, yeah. to, if you were about to engage with a particular... Uh, private equity investor, for example, to go and look at all the deals they've done and all the sets of articles that they've negotiated and see if the lever provisions are the same in all of them. <laughs> and I almost guarantee I you they, they will not be. be. No, no. Um, so I think, yeah, uh, 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 that, that, that's, um, I think that's, that's quite, yeah, quite the, the interesting proof of the pudding on some of this, and again, we've, we've, we've completed two or three transactions this year that are, are memorable, and two of them particularly stand out because... Once the transaction had closed, and if I, the transactions I have in mind, one of them was earlier in the year. It was a UK-based business that sold to a US investor, actually on behalf of a US um, complementary business, effectively. So, but the, the drive was very definitely from the Americas in terms of where it came from. Uh, and then the second was UK domiciled, much bigger transaction in, in much stronger transaction in real terms, but a financial investor here in the UK um, working with our client for what could be, and it had a, a, a four to five year journey in terms of where they were going. They had all of the ingredients you we've touched on in this conversation today. So exiting shareholders, some retained equity, forward investments, some structured loan notes, coupon, sweet equity being created, and all the associated and paraphernalia that went with it in mm. terms of where we are. The critical thing with both transactions, both transactions ended with all parties agreeing they'd done a good job and what they'd ended up with was something that either completely matched their requirements or, if it didn't, was close enough to know that they'd, they'd done a decent job, both yeah. sides in terms of where they were. And for all, both sets of parties... 
both from the seller and for the vendor. It was genuinely a pleasure to work with them from our perspective in evolution because they were working together to achieve the outcome. It wasn't adversarial. I remember a long time ago somebody saying to me, you need to understand fundamentally M&A is a fight. It's about being adversary <laughs> and about winning the contest. And I remember at the time thinking, that cannot Doesn't. surely be right. No, and I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't agree more with with you, Steve. I, th- I don't think M and A should be a, should be a, a fight at all. In fact, actually, if it is a fight, all it's going to do is make the deal take a lot longer to get to completion. Yeah. And I've never, I don't think I've ever encountered a seller who's in, who has said, "Don't care how long it takes," I can, and I, I don't. I don't mind if I don't get my money for six months. Everything wants to, you know, it, you're only going to get the deal done in six to eight weeks. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's tight, but I'm just saying you're only going to get the deal done in six to eight weeks if, 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 if people are um, trying to work together. No. Of course, one of the interesting, one of the other ways, one of the other potential, um, well, one of the most, sometimes the most friendly deals is one we haven't really talked about yet, which is the good old management buyout, yeah. where actually you could either as a seller could end up being a, uh, you know, having a, retaining a stake in the, mm. in the, in the group going forward mm. by agreeing to, uh, sort of co-invest with your management team, um, but you know, often you know that can be a a a, 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 a good deal to structure if you've got mm. the right management team mm. because they can be a financial buyer because they'll have to go and raise some bank debt or, mm. or find someone to to invest alongside them to do it. But you know, sometimes that can be the the least adversarial way of getting the transaction getting a transaction done mm. and seeking an exit route for founders is, no, is, is, is actually selling to management and, and, and again sharing the story in terms of where they want it to go to yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. completely and they and often that there are you know interests are aligned you've got mm. a group of who have come up they can afford to um you know take take the business to the next level almost on their own mm. um and um, you know, quite often that can be the uh, you know that can be the the best one of the best solutions, mm. um, and least adversarial, like you say. Yeah, mm. good, good. Simon, thank you. That's been a really interesting conversation. It, it, it's always good to get the lawyer's perspective around these things. From our perspective, it may well be us that initiate a transaction with a client, but working with the partner law firm is a crucial part of us delivering on the trust our client places in us to deliver their outcome, whatever that might be, whether that's a walk away and a full exit, or as we've been discussing more about today, a future value creation in conjunction with an investor or another partner. So uh, the partner law firm is important. It's great to have expertise from all people like yourself and from organizations like EMW. And from our perspective, we're really looking forward to the chance to work with you again. Thank you for listening to the Evolution CBS podcast. You can follow us on LinkedIn and visit our website, www.evolutioncbs.co.uk, where you can subscribe to our email newsletter, get further details of our transactions, read the blogs we regularly publish, and learn about the free business owner masterclasses that we run in London and elsewhere in England. Thanks again.